Right. All right. So thanks very much for inviting us. Uh, we're going to tag team on this. So um, I'll start. Can you guys hear me? Okay. All right. So we think there's a kind of unfortunate lacuna in uh, the literature. On the one hand, estheticians, particularly since Sibley's work, have spent lots of time thinking about aesthetic adjectives and aesthetic language. On the other hand, there's, uh, there's semanticists and philosophers of lang language who spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of adjectives. But there hasn't been much communication between these two groups of people. So the estheticians haven't looked too much at what the semanticists say and vice versa. We hope to begin to remedy this. So here's the plan. We'll do a very brief introduction of uh, great, the, some literature about some, some views about gradable adjectives and aesthetic adjectives in relation to those uh, adjectives. Then we'll talk about some experiments we did to explore the nature of aesthetic adjectives. Uh, we'll consider some hypotheses that would explain the results that we got from our, from our uh, experiments and present uh, just hot off the press fourth, fourth study that explores some of those hypotheses. And then we'll end by talking about some of the implications that we think stem from this research. OK, so according to standard semantic tests, vast majority of aesthetic adjectives, beautiful, ugly, pretty, dainty, elegant, are gradable adjectives. They allow for degree modifiers like very and extremely. And they allow for comparative constructions like more beautiful, more beautiful or uglier than. So they're gradable adjectives. It may be unique used in the aesthetic context is one exception, although that's, I think that's debatable. Um, many people think that it's the standard in the literature to think gradable adjectives exhibit a kind of context sensitivity. Um, relative gradable adjectives in particular adjectives like tall, big, small, expensive, their application, the application of the positive form, that's a, that's a tall man, um, for example, requires a contextually determined degree of a property. What counts as tall in one context, if you're talking about jockeys, might be different than what counts as tall uh, when you're talking about basketball players. Chris Kennedy, in some work, has argued that there's an important class of gradable adjectives that aren't context-sensitive. So there's the quote from Kennedy. There's a well-defined set of adjectives that's demonstrably gradable, um, but they don't have a context-dependent interpretation. He calls those absolute gradable adjectives. And he distinguishes two classes within the absolute gradable adjectives. These, these adjectives that don't exhibit context sensitivity. The first are maximums, what he calls maximum standard absolute gradable adjectives, whose, absolute, whose application requires a maximal degree of a property. Pure examples are pure, dry, closed, straight. Roughly speaking, to um, apply these terms, straight, something has to be maximally straight. Um, and on his account. And there's another class, the minimum standard absolute gradable adjectives, whose application requires some minimal degree of, only a minimal degree of a property. In order to count as impure or bent, you only have to have a minimal degree of impurity of the relevant property or bendiness. Okay. Evidence for this distinction comes from various entailment patterns. So there are two semantic tests that he appeals to. 
One are certain kinds of entailments um, associated with the positive form of the adjective, and the other are certain kinds of antonym entailments. Both suggest that at least some of the aesthetic adjectives, at least some aesthetic adjectives, fall into the um, relative category rather than the absolute. So they fall into the category like small, tall, big, thin, rather than flat, straight, bent. Okay, so uh, with maximal standard absolute gradable adjectives, you get inferences of the following form, entailments of the following form. From my door is more closed than Sam's door, it seems to entail that his door isn't closed. Closed is maximum standard. If mine's, my door is more closed than his, his door doesn't, hasn't at the, isn't at the maximum standard, so it isn't closed. And if my fence is more bent than Sam's fence, fence, remember, was a minimal standard, absolute gradable adjective, just needs a minimal standard in order to apply it. Mine's more bent than his fence. My fence, if we had fences, which we don't in Leeds, but if we did in Leeds have fences, and my fence was more bent than his, which it would be, um, then, then that would entail that my fence was bent, because at least I've got some minimal degree in it. Tells I've got some minimum, my fence has some minimal degree of bendiness. Um, uh, that sort of pattern isn't found with the uh, relative gradable adjectives like tall and fat and thin. So from John is taller than Jim, you don't get an entailment to Jim is not tall. They both might be tall. And again, from John is taller to Jim, you don't get an entailment to, uh, to John is tall. Um, because both of them might be short, even though John is taller than Jim. So with, maxim with absolute gradable adjectives, you get these entailments. With relative gradable adjectives, you don't get these entailments. It looks like, at least with beautiful, um, and we think some of the other aesthetic adjectives, you, get, you don't get the entailments. So they pattern like relative gradable adjectives. From John is more beautiful than Jim. Um, John is more beautiful than Jim doesn't seem to entail that Jim is not beautiful. They both might be beautiful. John just might be a little bit more beautiful than Jim. Uh, and from John being more beautiful than Jim, doesn't seem to, that doesn't seem to entail that John is beautiful. Uh, it might be the case that John is not beautiful, but he's more beautiful than Jim. So again, it looks like beautiful falls into this category, the category of relative gradable adjectives, which remember we said most people take to be context sensitive. Again, these are like tall, thin, fat, small. Some other, uh, other entailments. Um, with the absolute gradable adjectives, uh, you get entailments to antonyms, so from um, negations of the positive form. So from the door is not open, Looks like it follows that the door is closed. My fence is not straight. It looks like it follows that my fence is bent. You don't get that kind of pattern with, with relative gradable adjective antonyms from John's not being tall. Doesn't follow that John is short. From uh, Jim's not being short, it doesn't follow that he's tall. And again, it looks like with the antonyms, these aesthetic antonyms, beautiful and ugly, it looks like um, you don't get the entailments. So, it, so from John being not beautiful, you don't get that John is ugly, for example. 
So again, it looks like the aesthetic adjectives fall into the category of relative gradable adjectives. They're patterning like that, and hence, some reason to think they'll exhibit the context sensitivity of those relative gradable adjectives. Empirical support for the existence of this class, of the class of absolute gradable adjectives, is found from some of Kristen Surratt's work um, on the, which was, it was work done to explore the acquisition of uh, certain kind of um, gradable adjectives and understanding of them among children. She developed what she calls the presupposition assessment task um, to test to see whether children are understanding these gradable adjectives like adults. So here's how it goes. Sarah, the experimenter or a pup, or the experimenter in the form of a puppet will present pairs of stimuli with different degrees of irrelevant property. So two blocks of a different length, two discs with a dis different number of spots, two sticks that are, have a different degree of bendiness, present those to the participants, and then the experimenter or the puppet will, will ask for the object using a definite description. Please give me the X one. Please give me the spotted one. Please give me the long one. Please give me the bent one. So, putatively, the use of the the definite description in the request presupposes existence that there's at least one object satisfying the adjective and uniqueness that there's at most one object satisfying the adjective. When Sirrett and her confederates run this sort of uh, test, on subjects, both children and adults, they get a pattern of responses that seems to support the, the, the relative absolute distinction. So with relative ad gradable adjectives such as big and long, when uh, the child or the adult is asked to please give me the big one, please give me the long one, uh, the result is that children, both children and adults have little trouble complying with the request. Compliance is at or near ceiling. On the other hand, with absolute gradable adjectives such as spotted, where we're presented with a, a disc that has seven spots and a disc that has three spots on it, and asked to um, give the, the spotted one, please give me the spotted one, uh, there's low compliance with the request. Children, both children and adults, there's a high degree of refusal. So what am I supposed to do? I can't, I can't, I don't know what you want. An explanation, natural explanation for this difference is that with the relative gradable adjectives, people can always shift the context to satisfy uniqueness and existence. I've got two long sticks, two sticks, different length. Please give me the long one. Shift the context uh, to set the cutoff for what counts as long at a point so that only one of the two things counts as long. Participants can comply with the experimenter's request by choosing the object that possesses the property to the greater degree. But with an absolute gradable adjectives, which again, can they suggest aren't context sensitive, people aren't able to shift the context since there's a default minimal or maximal point for the application of the predicate. So in cases where either uniqueness or existence is not satisfied, so um, spots, seven spots and three spots give me the spotted one, uniqueness is not satisfied, participants will refuse to comply with the request. They don't know how to only give you, pick out one one spotted object. All right, now I'm going to turn it over to Sam. All right.
Okay, so we started with a pretty simple question. Is this an adjective relative or absolute? Seems like a pretty easy question. We thought based on semantic tests it would be relative. At least that's what we thought going in. Turned out that's not what exactly happened. So we basically implemented what Sarah did online uh, using a non-mechanical Turk to explore the nature um, of aesthetic adjectives. And here's the first simple study. Right, so we just tested beautiful as our paradigmatic aesthetic adjective and then used long straight spotted, which Sarah used as um, the paradigmatic relative and minimum standard absolute and maximum standard absolute gradable adjectives. And we didn't observe any gender age order effects. So this is our experimental procedure. Participants look at this and then um, these two objects and then they say, please pick out the spotted object. Right? And as Aaron said, uh, here the correct response is you should say, I can't. Both are spotted. Then they did something similar with a face and beauty. And we have some similar things. So these photos are um, digitally manipulated. And the operationalization for us is we just increase asymmetry to make the person less beautiful. Um, so you'll see I made the object B even uglier than object A <laughs> by you know, tweaking the nose a little bit and making the eyes not the same size, etc. And then we ask the same questions. Okay. So <coughs> here's the result we got. Long, relative adjective, most of you are complied. Um, spotted and straight, the absolute adjectives, most, most people refused. And as you can see, beautiful, somewhere in the middle. That's pretty weird. Okay. So at this point, we'll make a really bold claim. Aesthetic adjectives just resist this relative absolute distinction, and they're weird in themselves, they're a unique category. And you should say, you don't have enough evidence for this claim. Um, I think that's right. You can ask, well, is it just the result of a particular stimuli used? Maybe you think it's kind of weird to use beautiful with men's faces. So we've heard this a lot. Um, and can you really generalize from beautiful to all aesthetic adjectives? And in particular, there's some in the experimental philosophy literature, and I think also in linguistics literature, people think there's something different about things like ugly and beautiful. So how much does this generalize, right? So we try to follow this up with another study, um, but this time we use ugly instead of beautiful, and then we kept the other parts the same. And then we introduce a new phase, because we kind of want to also know why people are saying um, why people are refusing to select the beautiful one. And so, again, they're asked to pick out the ugly object in the first phase. We call this the selection phase. So they're selecting the ugly, the lone object, and so on. And then we have um, a comparison task that followed. <coughs> so the idea is that we want to use this to get insight into why participants are doing this. Is it just because um, so here's, here's a very natural thought. With things like long, there's a really clear scale, right, from really short things to long scale things. But with things like beauty, things can be beautiful in lots of different ways, ugly in lots of different ways, plausibly. And you might say, like, there's some kind of incommensurability. Um, 
So, and then you might also worry that people just think like, I can't make any statement about what's more beautiful or not. Uh, I can't compare these two objects in terms of beauty. Um, so we want to rule out those people, right? The people who cannot select the beautiful one just simply because they can't, they, they're not even willing to compare or they think that two objects are about the same degree of beauty, right? Um, if they're equally beautiful, you also cannot pick out the beautiful one, but that's not very interesting for our purpose. Okay, so then in comparative base, what we ask is, what do you think are the pair of objects in the picture of love? Object A is more ugly than object B. Object B is more ugly than object A. Um, and we use um, different stimuli, so these are uh, sports cars, so we now use the artifacts, and they're different in different stages of restoration. Okay, and sorry, let me go back to one more. So in, in addition to sports cars, we also use um, women's faces and sunflowers in different stages of decay. So the idea is that we get a wider range of domains, people's faces, artifacts, as well as natural objects. Okay, so then uh, first we excluded what I'm calling obvious nonsense responses, which are just people who are incoherent on a selection task and a comparison task. Um, so we just attribute that to not careful participants, right? So people who say object A is the beautiful one, but object B is more beautiful than object A, and I think these people are just not to be trusted. So we threw them out. <laughs> okay. And then this is the result we got. So again, long paradigmatic relative, most people comply, spotted. Paradigmatic absolute, most people refuse. Beautiful, still in the middle, still okay. weird. Right? Sorry, ugly, it's still in the middle, still weird. Uh, and if you can read, the face is the most one on your most left, and then the car and the flower. All right, so collectively, um, the results of study to again indicate there's aesthetic adjectives don't seem to function like either paradigmatic relative gradable adjectives or paradigmatic absolute gradable adjectives. Okay, so I think we have a little more evidence now that aesthetic adjectives are kind of weird. Um, but we got, we presented itself, and then we got lots of good questions. <coughs> so, first question, like, hey, you guys are aestheticians, why don't you do this with artworks? Excellent question. Uh, second question, what about a little thicker or substantive aesthetic adjectives, such as elegant? Right, so, so far we've, we've tested thin adjectives, and this is actually also an excellent question, and has some upshot of how we can interpret study three's data. I'll come back to that in a second. And then people also have some methodological worries, like um, can you make it even closer to Surrett's design? Um, yeah, so sorry, it's probably these questions have raised by some people in the audience here, and we're very grateful. Um, and could people's responses be driven by the fact that some stimuli just digitally manipulate versions of the same things? So like the photographs, we just digitally manipulated them, then you might think, it's kind of a weird question, right? Um, it's like if you see a picture of Michael Jordan being straight and a picture of Michael Jordan sitting down and you say, pick out the tall one, you might say, well, it's the same person. So that's kind of a weird question to ask. Um, so good, so um, we're, we're trying to get rid of that in, this, in the next study. All right, so <coughs> for the third study, uh, we went to beautiful again, and we did elegant and long and spotted. Um, but this time, we did 
with artworks as our stimuli. In particular, we use abstract sculptures. Okay, um, we can come back to why we use abstract sculptures in the Q and A if you want. So here are a couple of uh, Barbara Hepworth sculptures. It's because we also want to represent Yorkshire. Uh, yeah. So this is the first part. Right. Please pick out the beautiful one. Um, and then here, participants, instead of clicking, um, choosing from the four options, they just click on the item. So you might think this is closer to what Sarah asked the children to do. So then they just click on those pictures, or they click on the big red button that says, I can't perform this task. Um, although you might have some worry about experimental demands here, like big red button, like I don't want to click on it. So we actually had an instruction phase that we show people it's okay to click on the red button. Like, it, it, in fact, it's a correct response in some cases. Like, if you have two bent rods, it's okay to say, I can't perform this task. So we try to counter that experimental demand um, by, in an instructional phase. Okay, and then follow up, we have the comparative phase. Here are two Noguchi no sculptures. Um, no West Yorkshire connection there, just without a school. So we ask, please pick out the one that's more elegant. And then again, they click on it as before. All right. <coughs> Still, we got the same pattern of results. You got long all the way on your left, mostly com um, compliant, uh, completely compliant actually here, and spotted, mostly refusal, but um, beautiful. We did it with Hepworth sculptures and Henry Moore sculptures. And elegant, we did it with Brancusi sculptures and Noguchi sculptures. They're still somewhere in the middle. Um, by the way, I'm just skipping all the statistical analysis stuff right now. And if you want to look at that, uh, we got it here. I'm happy to talk about that in the Q&A. Um, but these are, the differences are statistically significant. You just trust me on that for now. Okay. So once again, from study three, we think there's good evidence to think aesthetic adjectives don't function like paradigmatic relative gradable adjectives or paradigmatic absolute gradable adjectives. And furthermore, the results with beautiful are in line with results with elegance. So ordinary people seem to use thin aesthetic adjectives in the same way as thicker aesthetic adjectives. And this actually helps us rule out one of the hypotheses we've heard from some people. So some people think um, one thing that's kind of unique about aesthetic and other evaluative adjectives is multidimensionality, that they have lots of dimensions associated with them. So there are many dimensions of being beautiful. Uh, um, so we think there's something to this, but I think when you think about it, there are probably fewer ways of being elegant than beautiful. So elegant seems less multidimensional than beautiful. And if you think what's going on here is multidimensionality, you should predict some difference between beautiful and elegant. That's just not what we saw. Right, so there's some reason to think uh, that's probably not the main factor that's driving it, even if it could be like a small factor, we think that's not quite what's going on there. Because beautiful and elegant basically get used the same way. Okay, so again, the results in the study are in line with earlier studies. So ordinary people seem to be using aesthetic adjectives more or less the same way, irrespective of the kind of object predicated, right? So we now explore a fourth domain, artworks, in addition to people's faces, in addition to natural objects, in addition to non-artistic artifacts. I think cars are not particularly artistic. I guess we can debate about that. Um, and 
So again, it seems like there's a class of adjectives, like adjectives that um, is not obviously relative or absolute. <coughs> okay, so we presented the foregoing three studies, and we heard some hypothesis from people, and we hope to hear more from people today. What's going on here? Because we basically don't have a super clear idea. We just think it's weird. Um, okay, so here's one thing that people often say to us. They just say to us the word subjectivity. But then usually they don't offer further specific, like which way subjectivity should go. They just think subjectivity must be somewhere in there. Aesthetic adjectives are subjective. That must be a part of the story. Um, so here's what we got from one um, journal reviewer. So the journal reviewer said, my guess is that behavior observed with aesthetic adjectives is deeply connected to whatever it is we're talking about when we talk about evaluativity, subjectivity, and so forth. Okay, um, kind of vague, but we'll try to explore this idea. Second hypothesis of my explain this, um, Chris Candy points out that relative gradable adjectives don't admit Chris judgments. So if x is only actually slightly greater than y with respect to some feature f, then x is the f1 is infelicitous. So if John is 1.75 meters tall, Joe is 1.751 meters, then it's weird to say um, Joe is a tall one. Even if you can make the comparative contrast that uh, Joe is the taller one, right? so you can perfectly answer that question, it's, it's still not felicitous to say uh, Joe is the tall one. Right? So that will explain some of our results if um, what's going on if we think of aesthetic adjectives as relative adjectives, but then what's happening is that people's judgments of two objects are just really close to one another, so then they can make the comparative judgment that one is more beautiful than the other, or one is more elegant than the other, but they cannot make the selective judgment that this is the beautiful one, or this is the elegant one. So that's another way we might go about explaining your data. Um, and you might think this plus this other factor that there's interpersonal variation with respect to scales, beauty, ugliness, and so on, will explain data because some people will comply because they see two objects as re being really different in terms of beauty, so they have no trouble picking it, but some think it's really close. So even though they think there's some comparative difference, they can't pick out the beautiful one, and so on. Right. So it's like no crisp judgment plus interpersonal variation with respect to beauty, ugliness, and so on. So you might think this is one way to put a little more beef on the subjectivity idea. Okay, another way to put a little more beef on the subjectivity idea, um, this is from one of uh, our commenters, Mark Phelan. So he suggested quadratically, so we went in, we think that we thought aesthetic adjectives are relative, and that's what we've been thinking about most of the time, but he said, no, maybe aesthetic adjectives are all absolute, but then they just have thresholds, minimum thresholds, or maximum thresholds that vary with, um, from person to person. Okay, so that's a very intriguing objection, or hypothesis, um, and so the thought here is that for some people, they're gonna refuse because both, I, both objects go past the threshold and then they can pick out the uniquely beautiful one, and for others, only one of the objects is gonna go past the threshold, so they can pick out the uniquely beautiful one. And um, it's the interpersonal variation in the minimum threshold that explains the data, the sort of in-between data that we got. Right? So the data we got is always some people refused and some people complied. 
Okay, and then uh, Mark really nicely ran a pilot study which gives some support to his hypothesis. Okay, so we have all, all of this nice hypotheses that people have given us, so we want to follow up with a fourth study um, that we just really, really recently completed, and this is the first time we're presenting it, so we're curious to see what you think. It's a debut. Um, okay, so then, basically same procedure as before. Um, it's almost the same as the previous study, study three, but I'll tell you one difference. Okay, so first part, exactly the same. Please pick out the beautiful one. Second part, now we do something different. Before, we ask people to make an explicit comparison. Right, now we try to make people make an kind of implicit comparison. So um, this might be a little hard to see, but um, they get two little slider bars. So one, the first question is how beautiful is the object on the left? And on the zero to 100 scale, they can slide it however they want. And second question, how beautiful is the object on the right? Again, zero to 100 scale. And the zero anchor to not at all beautiful, and 100 is anchored to extremely beautiful. Okay, so zero should be your minimum threshold. Okay, so first, again, we got the same pattern of results. Right? The same as before, beautiful and elegant are both weird, so we replicated our earlier finding again. But it also allows us to take a look at some of the, um, these hypotheses. So <coughs> with this final study, we added an additional question in the final demographic phase, so after people have done all the tasks earlier, uh, we just ask people a really simple question. So this, I want to say this is just highly exploratory because we don't precisely know what people have in mind when they have this subject, subjectivity hypothesis and that we'll be happy to hear thoughts. Um, so they're asked, participants were asked, it is commonly said there is no disputing taste. Um, do you agree or disagree? And then they responded on the one strongly agree to seven strongly disagree scale. Okay. And then, since we're just exploring, we just divided participants to refuse um, selection tasks as, and participants who didn't. But then there's going to be no difference between them in terms of subjectivity. Right? So whichever direction you think subjectivity is supposed to do the work, it doesn't seem like it's doing that work. Maybe there's something else that's more subtle that's going on. We'll be happy to hear um, other ways of exploring this subjectivity idea. But based on our exploration here, that doesn't seem to be what's going on. At least it can't be the main thing. Okay, so second, no Cripps judgment. Uh, we want to operationalize the no Cripps judgment hypothesis. So we look at the mean of the difference in the comparative phase. So remember, participants rated each object on a 0 to 100 scale. So we just look at the mean between them. And then the mean, dif uh, and specifically we look at the participants who refuse, because these are supposed to be the people who um, can make the comparative judgment, but the comparative the difference is so small that they refuse to pick out the beautiful one and so on. Right, so the mean differences are um, 10.5, 14.55, 12.3, 9 9.63. These are huge differences, but on a 100-point scale, they don't seem insubstantial to us. Um, part of the issue here is it's, it's hard to tell what's meant by like slightly different, um, but we think whatever that means, this seems like a little more than slightly different, right? Oh. Yeah. Okay, so then third hypothesis um, that aesthetic adjectives are absolute with varying thresholds. So for this, it would be useful to go back to spotted, the really clear case, right? So spotted, the minimum one, 
where there are no spots, um, people just said it's not at all spotted when they're asked to rate how spotted an object is. Right? They assign to zero, the minimum threshold. Okay, that's not what participants did with the beauty and the elegant stimuli. So we looked at the ratings participants gave to whichever one they rated as the lower one. Um, we just took the, the smaller of the two judgments. And then the minimum, the means are 31 21.08, 27.94, 29.15. Um, again, these seem to me, to us, decently far away from zero, and or really clearly above zero, which is supposed to be anchored to not at all beautiful or not at all elegant, right? So they think even the, the one that they thought was less beautiful or less elegant still have some degree of beauty and some degree of elegance, right? So it made, made it past their own minimum threshold, whatever those are, because we didn't specify those. You can, you can always assign your minimum threshold to zero. All right, so now Aaron will talk about some general implications of these studies. Thanks, sir. All right, so we've got four studies. They all su support the, the main effect, which is, roughly speaking, that aesthetic adjectives are weird. They don't pattern either like the paradigmatic absolute gradable adjectives or the paradigmatic relative gradable adjectives. So what are some implications? So here's one implication that we've been starting to think about and talk about. There's a, there's a long tradition of, of, in philosophical literature of thinking that there are some problems with aesthetic communication. Aesthetic communication is difficult. So there's, um, in aesthetics, there's the acquaintance principle articulated by Richard Walheim, suggests that you can't make a, a judgment Judgments of aesthetic value have to be based on first-person experience of the object. Sometimes people allow some surrogates there. Um, the acquaintance principle um, is related to this uh, view that many philosophers of art have, which is that um, testimony in the aesthetic realm is somehow problematic. We can't gain knowledge, can't gain aesthetic knowledge, knowledge of what's beautiful, what's uh, artistically valuable um, by means of testimony, which is quite odd because in many other, within many other domains, um, testimony is one of the primary ways in which we gain knowledge and gain information. So there's this, lots of people have many different views about the acquaintance principle and pessimism about testimony, but there is this long-standing view that there's something problematic about aesthetic testimony. Some people are full-fledged pessimists and think you just can't, uh, you, you just can't gain knowledge, uh, aesthetic knowledge from what other people say. Even those who are optimistic about, or optimists who think you can under certain conditions gain knowledge, do you think there's something problematic? I do have this, this thought that there's something problematic about aesthetic testimony. Furthermore, there's a, another sort of view, perhaps best articulated by Arnold Eisenberg in his paper, Critical Communication, which says that there are other kinds of demands that, that uh, aesthetic communication or critical communication um, face. Uh, reading criticism otherwise, in the, he says, in the presence of or without direct recollection of the objects discussed is a blank and senseless employment. So 
as compared to many other domains where you don't need to have the, um, the object discussed in front of you or direct recollection of the object in order to communicate about it, the aesthetic domain is one in which there's this extra demand. Okay, so the thought here is that many people have suggested there's a trouble or difficulty or significant challenges with aesthetic communication or critical communication. <coughs> one general idea that you might... So one way of going is thinking there's a really sharp distinction between aesthetic communication and other forms of com communication to sort of go for some robust principle, special aesthetic norms, for example, or special views about the met metaphysics of aesthetic properties that would explain this difference, why there's this problem with aesthetic communication. Another way to go, one that I'm more sympathetic to, and uh, Sam is too, is think there's not just one big thing that makes aesthetic communication problematic, but there are a lot of little things that sort of make, that make it hard, that make aesthetic communication difficult. So I mentioned in some earlier papers, unreliability, for example. Um, one thing that we've started thinking is that our results suggest that the weirdness of aesthetic adjectives might be one of those things that makes aesthetic uh, communication difficult. Um, so, perhaps there's a kind of subtle polysemy. There are two, there's like beautiful relative and beautiful absolute, right? There's a relative gradable beautiful and an absolute uh, um, gradable beautiful that are difficult to detect in ordinary conversation and that theorists haven't really been able to, have, haven't really um, characterized or distinguished. If there's that sort of subtle polysemy in conversation, which we're not aware of and that's hard to discern, that could create some challenges for aesthetic communication. If I'm treated, using it as absolute in some context and Sam's using beautiful as relative, we might be talking uh, past each other. Um, there could be a kind of common performance error, just a very common, maybe, maybe beautiful is just is relative and there's just a lot of performance error here or something. But if there's a lot of performance error, that does seem like there's going to be an additional challenge to aesthetic communication. Could be that some people always use, uh, some people are just beauty relativizers. They always treat beauty as a relative gradable adjective and some treat it as a, always treat it as an absolute gradable adjective. If so, again, there's going to be troubles with communication between those people. So one potential upshot of this research is that it might go some ways to explaining one of the mechanisms uh, that underlies the difficulty of aesthetic communication. Um, some other implications. Since Sibley, philosophers have been quite interested in distinguishing what is distinctive, if anything, about aesthetic concepts or aesthetic adjectives. Uh, one possibility is that this feature, this, this uh, way in which they distinguish the aesthetic adjectives are distinct from other kinds of gradable adjectives might point to a way in which aesthetic adjectives are distinctive, or perhaps it's a feature that other evaluative adjectives also exhibit. We haven't ex tested those other evaluative adjectives. Finally, um, we think this research shows there's, a, it's, there's an example, an a, a example of experimental philosophical aesthetics um, and a particular a, a kind that's different from some of the other bits of experimental philosophical aesthetics that are out there in literature, 
the three articles that we know of, um, because it's, it's using very different methods, adopting methods from psycholinguistics, and tackles questions um, in non-perceptual aesthetics using both philosophical and empirical methods. And for more on that, you can look at our, uh, you should check the website, XFi Aesthetics. Thanks very much. Thank you.